Matt Goodman. I uh, hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSAS and uh, oversee the Reconnecting Asia Project, which is one of the co-hosts or co-sponsors of this uh, event. Uh, delighted to have you with us. Delighted to have our online audience as well. We always have a good following online. Welcome uh, to you as well. Uh, in case you are in the wrong place, this is uh, we're going to be rolling out a, a, a report of a task force on global infrastructure uh, that we've been running for the last six or seven months um, under the uh, co the, the leadership of, of uh, Charlene Barshevsky and Steve Hadley, and I'll introduce them in a minute. Um, but I wanted to first uh, get the administrative things out of the way. Uh, first of all, uh, please, as usual, turn off your uh, phones if you could. Um, and then if there's any kind of emergency, basically follow me. We can go that way if it's appropriate or uh, down back through here. There's an uh, emergency exit down to the alley behind and the rally point is National Geographic, a block down here. Um, uh, before uh, briefly summarizing the report, uh, I want to thank uh, the sponsors of this project, um, Bechtel Group, uh, IBM, and the Inter-American Inter Development Bank, who very generously uh, contributed to make this uh, project possible. Um, and so thank uh, all of them. Uh, thanks also to all the task force members and advisors and, and others who provided uh, valuable insight into the project. Um, uh, their names and affiliations are listed at the beginning of the full report, which you don't have in front of you, but it's online. I happen to have one of the few copies here. But there's an online version of this, and the full names and affiliations of the task force members and advisors is in here. Uh, you can find that. Um, let me emphasize that all the task force members participated in their individual capacities, not uh, on behalf of the uh, institutions with which they're affiliated, um, and they didn't necessarily agree with everything that was written in here, uh, findings or recommendations, but there was broadly a consensus, I think, of the group about what we, were, uh, what we found and what we recommended. So CSAS has been following the global infrastructure build-out for several years now, including China's Belt and Road and other competing visions um, associated with this build-out. Uh, in the Reconnecting Asia project, uh, led by my colleague John Hillman, um, also, by the way, the drafter of today's report. Uh, he's a great writer, and it's a good read. Um, we're tracking over 14,000 projects on our interactive map and database at reconnectingasia.csas.org, which is advertised up there. So please uh, go to the website, and you'll see that the, the featured uh, story right now is this event and, and this report. Um, our colleagues in the program, uh, Project on Prosperity and Development have also done extensive work on uh, quality infrastructure, on mobilizing private finance uh, for infrastructure, and as you'll hear from my colleague Dan Rundy in a moment, um, also in helping stand up the new U.S. Development Finance Corporation, which is an important new tool uh, that the U.S. government has to, uh, to compete in this, in this area. So now more than ever, infrastructure is a strategic issue. Uh, both because of pressing global needs. Uh, one estimate has uh, it that uh, the, the world's going to need about 90 trillion, that's nine zero trillion with a T, uh, dollars worth of infrastructure by 2040. Uh, you know, even if that's off by orders of magnitudes, we're talking about large amounts of, of money that are needed uh, to build infrastructure. And there are competing visions uh, for how to fill and meet those needs. Um, with China's Belt and Road Initiative being the most uh, prominent and ambitious uh, strategic initiative so far. In fact, later this week there's going to be a second Belt and Road Forum in Beijing uh, that Xi Jinping is hosting with some 40 world leaders, not including uh, senior American officials. Um, given the potentially transformative impact these changes in the world's connectivity could have for fundamental U.S. interests, 
CSIS launched the Global Infrastructure Task Force in October 2018 to help forge a bipartisan public-private consensus on a strategy for U.S. success in today's infrastructure build-out. Co-chaired by former USDR Charlene Barshevsky and former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, the task force was made up of a diverse set of experts with extensive experience in government, academia, multilateral institutions, and the private sector. Under Charlene's and Steve's leadership, the task force started by identifying U.S. interests at stake, commercial, economic, and strategic. Uh, next, we took a hard look at U.S. strengths and limitations in this infrastructure story. Obviously, given fiscal and political realities, uh, we recognize the United States is not going to compete with China in terms of public financing for infrastructure. We're not going to spend a trillion dollars. Actually, China might not spend a trillion dollars, but, but that's their stated uh, 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 floor of, of, for Belt and Road spending. But what the U.S. does have is innovative companies that offer great products and services, and they follow the rule of law. Uh, we have deep pools of private capital, uh, including large pension and insurance assets to support infrastructure investment, uh, and we bring capacity and technology and other things to this, uh, to this story. And these are things that are highly valued in the developing countries that are, uh, need infrastructure. So we actually have a real opportunity here to compete, we think. Uh, but as you know, if you got here by metro or through potholes, uh, infrastructure is a challenging business even in advanced countries. It's very uh, difficult, it takes time, it always runs over cost, uh, and there's a lot of risk associated with it. And uh, so there's an important role for public policy in helping to mitigate some of those risks and to support private uh, activity in this important business. What we need is a strategy for the United States. And to that end, the task force uh, articulated a three-part framework, which in the summary of our report, this brief uh, four-page um, document that you do have, you can see uh, we articulated a three-part framework for setting U.S. priorities. First, identify projects and geographies that are vital to U.S. economic and security interests, including especially digital and energy infrastructure, two key sectors for the U.S. and two areas of comparative advantage for the United States. Second, deploy and incentivize US, and, uh, U.S. public and private sector resources in those key infrastructure types and geographic areas in close coordination with U.S. partners and allies, and that point is particularly important. We can't do this alone. Finally, monitor and encourage the build-out of infrastructure that poses no risk to U.S. economic or security interests. Uh, and, you know, don't... We don't, a lot of the activity that's going to happen out there uh, is, even if the U.S. is not directly involved, is, is going to help support uh, uh, providing public goods, and we should be supportive of that. Along with this framework, the task force put forward seven policy recommendations, which you can find summarized um, in the inner fold of, of uh, this briefing. Um, at, at Charlene and Steve's urging, these ideas are, we think, bold and innovative, uh, and they include specific implementation steps that you can find in the full report. And we intend to continue, we were just talking in the green room about uh, ways to follow up and ensure that some of these uh, recommendations at least get in front of um, uh, policymakers in Congress and in the administration to, to try to get these things implemented. Uh, we hope you'll go to the URL uh, listed and download the full report. It's only 35 pages and, as I say, very well written, so it's an easy read. 
Um, and uh, we're looking forward to having a discussion about it today on the stage and then with you. And so with that, um, I'd like to invite my colleague Dan Rundy up to the stage with our panelists uh, to moderate a discussion about the report uh, and its findings and related issues. Um, Charlene and Steve, if you could join us up here, and Peter Raymond, uh, from, um, who's a, a real expert in global infrastructure uh, projects, and, and you'll see that in a second. Um, and uh, delighted to have all of them here. So with that, I will stand down, and I think the Oh, great. Thanks, thanks, Matt. Thank you. Um, I want to congratulate uh, John Hillman on, on helping draft this report. It's really, really a great job. And I want to thank uh, Macy McAlpin and uh, Chris Metzger, who were uh, two, did a lot of work on this. But um, I'm really, really grateful uh, to the two co-chairs, Charlene and Steve, for, for doing this. And I'm also very grateful, and we're really grateful to Peter Raymond. Um, but my opening question to all of you is, you all have got a lot of other asks of your time. Why did you decide to agree to uh, give so much of your time? You gave a lot, both, all three of you gave a lot of your time and advice to us um, to help make this happen. So why did you all agree to, to do this? Charlene, can I start with you? <laughs> There's a fool born every minute, right? There's a fool born every this uh, project, uh, to me, was really very uh, important for two different sets of reasons. Uh, one is that the U.S. has long been a leader in development assistance globally. Uh, it's a tiny portion of the federal budget, about 1.2%, which is nothing. But it's close to $50 billion uh, a year, and we've been pretty steady on that. And that provides important benefits to the United States in terms of making friends, uh, uh, preserving friendships, seeing growth in countries, raising living standards around the world, and so on, which is good for stability, obviously, but also ultimately good for the creation of markets uh, for what we want to sell and what we would hope we would want to buy. The second reason, though, that I was drawn to this uh, project uh, is that the framework the United States has always had as a leader in this area, right, from the Marshall Plan to the Bretton Woods institutions to recent announcements on the Indo-Pacific and the BUILD Act and so on, the world's need for infrastructure is an order of magnitude beyond anything the world has ever seen. So that in the next 15 years, as much infrastructure will be built as currently exists in the world. This is, this is very hard to get your head around. And the implications of this, I think, are, are fivefold, right? I think I, yeah. there's sort of five general observations I would make, and then I'll stop. I think the first is just the sheer need and the magnitude. Uh, developing Asia alone, the estimate is 21 billion over the next 10 years. I mean, these numbers are uh, astronomical. Trillion. A trillion, sorry, yeah. trillion, 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 with a T. Uh, second is the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and this initiative is grand strategy for sure. Uh, and it's designed really to uh, support China's global centrality, ultimately, certainly over the Eurasian landmass and I think beyond. And this poses some central questions, I think, for the United States. Infrastructure, 
meshes this massive global need with China's strategic ambitions. What is the U.S. response? We think it's critical that the U.S. Has, uh, uh, have a response. Third is that the global infrastructure build-out, especially when you consider the technology build-out on 5G and so on, will change linkages between countries, create new links, maybe pull apart old links. And that has economic implications for the U.S. and strategic implications. Uh, fourth, this um, build-out will happen, whether the U.S. participates or not. And it's critical, we believe, for the U.S. to participate in a sort of strategic and, uh, and focused uh, way. So for reasons, as Matt said in his opening, of economics, security, uh, and the full range of assets that the United States needs to preserve and enhance, this project, I think, helps put down on paper what the group felt were the most important <coughs> aspects that government ought to consider. And we put forward some recommendations we would hope the government would take into account. Now, Charlene, can I also add that I think that you and Steve like working with each other and get along. I think that also was a that was a, a sales that was a selling point as well. That helped. Ah, shucks. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Good. So, Peter, can can you tell me why did you why did you agree to do this? And remind folks. So, I think most folks here will know who Charlene and Steve are from their past government lives. And Charlene was former U.S. Trade Representative in another life, and Steve Hadley was the National Security Advisor in another life. They both are, have been active in the private sector for many years since. But, but Peter, you, you, were a, a, you were at PricewaterhouseCoopers for many years, and you, you're, were mainly, you were really involved in infrastructure work in your professional life at PricewaterhouseCoopers. You're now, we're really fortunate to have you as an affiliate here at CSIS. So why did you agree to do this other than that you're interested in the issues? Well, first of all, let me say it's a delight to be on stage with uh, such esteemed colleagues as uh, Charlene and Steve and, and you, Dan. And um, um, as you pointed out, my background is more from the commercial environment and the private sector environment. I've spent a great deal of my career working on infrastructure issues. And I had the, um, uh, the great privilege and pleasure, actually, to uh, live for about a year in China. Mm. And um, I was absolutely um, astounded by not, not just the, uh, the built infrastructure environment there, but the, um, the environment for innovation and, um, and the way in which innovations were technical mm -hmm. innovations were intersecting with um, infrastructure. And when I came back to the U.S., um, uh, by happenstance, I had an opportunity to, uh, to I was invited to speak at a CSIS event by Matt. Um, and, um, and Matt mentioned to me that, you know, infrastructure is a, a topic that CSIS is uh, continuing to focus on. And I said, I would, I'd certainly be happy to contribute what I can, primarily from a commercial perspective, from a competitiveness perspective, from the implications of technology as it intersects with infrastructure. And, um, and this task force opportunity came up and, and uh, it was really a great opportunity to uh, contribute in that capacity. So I, I certainly appreciated that. Good. Okay. So Steve, so thanks for being here. And so you, you've got plenty of other asks of your time. So why'd you agree to invest some of your time with us and help us with this? Well, in addition to the chance of co-chairing something with Shirley, which is always <laughs> a plus, I did it because John Hamry asked me. 
Mm. And John Hamry is one of this country's great public servants. Amen. And if he Amen. asks you to do something, Amen. you know, you got to have a reason not to do it. Um, I got into it, I think, because of China and the One Belt, One Road initiative, which I do think is the most um, visionary and strategic initiative of the 21st century so far. I mean, it is, we can go into great detail about how it works for China in so many different dimensions. But that's really, and, and what I did not see was an, a, a thoughtful, sustainable American approach and response to the One Belt, One Road Initiative. When I got into it, uh, of course, the size of the, of the task overwhelms you and you realize it's much bigger than China. I mean, Charlene mentioned, um, I think it's, the estimate is the Asia infrastructure requirement will be 26 trillion between now and 2030. And everybody says, well, China says they're going to do 1.3 trillion. Well, 1.3 trillion is a big number where I come from. But if the need in Asia only is 26 trillion between now and 2030, you can see that this is a much bigger thing than just about China. And what I think I wanted to do was to take a look at it from the standpoint of American interests. And this is something Charlene pushed from the very beginning. What are America's interests here? What are America's priorities? And what are America's competitive advantages? And how do you knit those together into a strategy? Mm. And that's what we think we did. And I, I, I just, we can talk a little bit about the recommendations, but I came away with a sense that if we will get in the game and use our advantages in a prioritized way where it's in our interest, we can manage this problem. Not only, it will provide a, a platform where we can protect our interests, where we can help the world get the quality infrastructure that it needs and that we need mm -hmm. the world to have if it is going to be a prosperous and secure future for all of us. Uh, and Andy, it will be a platform for which we can deal with China and everybody else. So the, the real bottom line is we can do this. We can, we can make a contribution here. It's in our interest to do so. But we got to get in the game ourselves. And we got to rally our friends and allies to the cause. Yeah. And that's really, that's where I came to see this report as an opportunity to, to make that point. And I think that's what we tried to do. Uh, could, Please. Could just one thing which actually you had pointed out uh, a couple of meetings ago, but it bears repeating, and I, I figured you'd say it, but you haven't, so I'll say it, but you're the one who said it, which is, we ha we're in a fortuitous situation if the U.S. government acts, because the areas of highest stakes yep. on this infrastructure build-out focus around, revolve around two in particular, technology and energy. And the U.S. has strong competitive advantages in both of those areas. Right. And they are both rather cost-effective areas for us. I mean, we have limited resources. We need a lot of focus. Uh, it can't be everywhere. Not everywhere matters. But you have to figure out your geographies. You have to figure out the countries. You have to figure out the projects. But as you look at the highest stakes, as Steve had pointed out, as I said a few meetings ago of the task force, as you look at the highest stakes areas, those areas favor U.S. advantages. Thank yeah, Peter, I jump in here, yeah. Um, I think these are really important points, and I think you'd find that U.S. companies 
are anxious to, uh, to get involved and to expand um, and to apply their technologies and know-how uh, overseas. But um, as the report points out, they face um, some competitive disadvantages vis-a-vis -vis the Belt and Road Program as it's currently designed and being delivered um, by China. And so the report goes into some recommendations about how to mobilize private capital. Let's face it, Steve talked about 26 trillion needed in Asia alone. The estimates run to 90 trillion for the globe. Um, there is a lot of private capital in the world, somewhere around $100 trillion in institutional investment assets around the world. If we can tap some aspect of that, we will apply a lot of additional resource to the infrastructure projects and infrastructure markets. Um, but to date, and the report deals with this, mm. to date we really haven't mobilized around this opportunity. U.S. capital markets are the most efficient in the world and the most innovative. And if we can bring that innovation uh, to bear around these particular challenges and um, tie that in with some project packaging that accelerates project lifetime, life cycles um, and emphasize the elements that make U.S. contractors distinctive in the, in the world, mm -hmm. and that is quality as well as some of the soft power aspects of U.S. Uh, if you speak with many people around the world, they have great admiration for U.S. companies and U.S. people. Um, and so not only do we deliver quality through our companies, but we also deliver a certain set of values which people have high regard for also. So, but we need, we need to mobilize ourselves to be able to stay in the game, much less to, to win the game if there is a Peter, it's fair to say that this is going to happen with or without the United States, yes. right? Is that yes. fair to say? Yeah. So it, it's probably in our best interest to get in the game. Uh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And it's not like we're completely out of the game, but we're playing with a different set of tools than, than China is playing currently. Um, and, and so I think we, we need to, as, the, as we've recommended in the report, we need to focus on some of these tools that will enable um, not only U.S. companies, but Western companies in conjunction with U.S. companies to, uh, to succeed in these competitions. Please. I was just going to say, I mean, if, if you think about the Power Africa project that's going on, uh, one of Matt Goodman's favorite phrases is crowding in money as opposed mm. to crowding out money. Uh, and so if you look at that project, U.S. interest in electricity availability in poorest countries, for example, uh, you have the U.S. getting in the game, then all these multilateral institutions join in, and you know, a ton of private sector companies put money in. And all of a sudden, you take some U.S. effort, and this effort is magnified many, many fold. That's the kind of thinking we, we would need behind uh, the infrastructure build out in the areas of greatest strategic value to the United States. Absolutely, absolutely. But this isn't a quiz on the, the exact recommendations or if you want to speak to the specific recommendations, but I'm hoping each of you would say, what are the, the bumper stickers you want folks to come away with from the report? Now, some of this you've, you've spoken about in your earlier answers, but what are some of the top two or three messages, the top line messages, either that you either took away from, from, the, from the last nine months of work that either that you want, that you want to share or that, either that you feel like you want to just under, double underline as part of the report. Maybe, Charlene, can I start with you? Uh, three, strategic selection of countries, 
uh, or sub-geographies. Uh, uh, number two, uh, strategic focus on sectors where we have the greatest competitive advantages. And number three, mobilizing private capital. Amen. Great. Peter? Yeah, I, I would say I think the report does a great job in, in setting the context, the, the, the magnitude of infrastructure that is going to be built um, around the world. Um, uh, secondly, that, um, that, that frankly, as we just were talking about, as far as the U.S. is concerned, we haven't really stepped up to the game yet in terms of the responding to that, both opportunity and challenge. Um, but thirdly, that we have a lot of assets that we can bring to the table. We've already talked about some of them, our leadership in, in certain aspects of technology, in the energy sector, capital markets formation, um, as well as our competitive spirit. I think that uh, we would find uh, a lot of success by implementing uh, many of these recommendations. But the takeaways, as I said, are that the, the opportunity and challenge is massive. Um, we have not yet kind of awoken to the opportunity and challenge, um, but we have a lot of assets on, on the American side of the ledger, which uh, would, be, would be very beneficial to us. And I also want to say something that, that we, we didn't hit so heavily, but we do mention it in the report, and that is that, that I don't see this, and I'm not sure we all see this as an either-or game, right? I think there are ways in which the U.S. and China can cooperate on projects around the world, and we should, as we should with other countries and other companies um, around the world. So it's not kind of a, an either-or, black or white, but there certainly are places where um, the U.S. from a national security standpoint and from a commercial um, standpoint needs to be investing more effectively. So a lot of it's been covered. One of the thematics, which is really on the title, which is what we call the higher road, quality. Mm -hmm. Focusing on quality infrastructure. And one of the things I like about the report is that it has a set of principles on what quality infrastructure means. It picks some from the, the EU has, has a version, uh, the Japanese have a version, we tried to pull them together. Um, there's a, it is free, it is open, it is resilient infrastructure, but it's, uh, it's transparent, it is open, uh, it is response, fiscally responsible, environmentally responsible, socially responsible, uh, it is resilient, uh, it is sustainable. These are the kinds of, what the world needs is that kind of infrastructure. And the problem so far with the Belt and Road Initiative is it has tended to be uh, fast, uh, it has tended to focus on more on the benefits to Chinese workers and companies than the recipient uh, countries. Uh, and it has resulted in a, a big tail of debt that is difficult to sustain. So one of, we, we think we ought to rally the world behind the notion of quality infrastructure, rally the world behind those set of principles. And one of the reasons to get into the game is who's in the game sets the standards. And we want the standards to reflect the kind of infrastructure that is both quality but also will knit the world together. Uh, and in, in that respect, uh, one of the things we say very clearly is there are some areas where they are a priority for the United States, and the biggest one we talk about is the digital infrastructure. Mm. And we can't allow anybody to uh, dominate, much less monopolize that, whoever it is. It's got to be open, and we've got to be a player in that area. 
But there are other areas of infrastructure in other geographic areas we don't care so much about. And there, we ought to be prepared to welcome China and cooperate with China, but also, again, as an international community, encourage China to meet those high standards so it is quality infrastructure that benefits the country mm -hmm. in which it's being deployed and that meets all those standards we talk about. And that's, that's really our, our response to how to think about how to respond to the, to the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, could I ask Peter and Shirley, could I ask each of you to just talk a little bit about China? And if I just say China, could you word associate a little bit China and infrastructure, how you react to that? Uh, look, I think the most critical area is 5G. Because as Steve said, uh, whoever wires the world, the word wire is an old word, but I'll use it because it's nice to have a visual, sets the standards sets the hardware, sets the upgrades. It's what your phone has to connect with. It's what your iPad has to connect with. It's what every digital sensor ultimately has to connect with. It is what makes um, augmented reality possible. It is what makes autonomous driving possible. It is what makes artificial intelligence impossible. All in real time, high analytic, compute power, and high predictive quality to the outcomes thrown out in real time. So this is an area that we cannot have other countries dominate. It's an area, if you think about where US wealth is created today, uh, and we think about the digital economy, that's $400 billion, digital services, $400 billion in exports a year from the US. Just as a matter of scale, soybeans is 30, 400 mm, no billion. Wow. Uh, it's 5.6 million jobs in the US. This is an area of enormous wow. importance to the United mm. States. So getting in this game with respect to the network build out, these are large scale networks in 5G, uh, uh, building the towers, uh, upgrading the hardware, upgrading and changing the devices connected to the hardware, creating new things like sensors connected to the hardware. All of this uh, becomes vitally important to the United States. It has to be open. Our economy depends on this kind of data flow uh, and connectivity being open. And if we think about the most extreme case where that connectivity is cabined off, where the government exercises sovereign rights over the internet, in particular geographies, we can see immediately this is not good for the United States, not economically, not with respect to security, given that most new technologies on 5G are dual use. They're as important for military applications as they are for commercial. Mm. So this is an area that I think is of enormous importance for the United States. Our own build-out in this country lags uh, far behind China's build-out in China. I think that's unfortunate, because uh, one would think one would want to build out one's country first and foremost. But hopefully, uh, we'll move along in this effort. Let's just stay on 5G for a minute and ask, mm -hmm. I want to hear from both of you about this, and I want to come broaden it out a little bit further about China, but let's just focus on 5G. So, 
So Peter, can you, if I said to you 5G, what's your reaction to 5G? Well, I think um, there's been a lot of talk, and Charlene has really summarized the issues on 5G very well. Um, but I think you have to look at the whole technology ecosystems that are being built and established, even pre-5G, where the groundwork is being laid around sensors, satellite technologies, um, software, and the like, that are facilitating one infrastructure delivery um, and operations, um, but also the rise of what we're calling smart cities or digital cities and the like. And, or and driverless cars or autonomous vehicles. Right, and, and, and all of this is coming, and it's coming sooner, I think, than, than many of us anticipate. But the, the technology ecosystems that are, are developing are really fascinating, and they're moving very quickly. And um, one of the things that, uh, if you look at this issue, you will see is that China has a digital ecosystem that is very intact, very integrated, very well working, very innovative, and, and really developing a whole series of new technology platforms and applications, some of which are in advance of the US. But it's operating in, its, in that kind of environment, and Charlene talked about open, transparent, the, the flow of data, et cetera. The, the US has advocated for standards of, of uh, free flow of data and transparency and, and the like. And so we, we have the prospect of two very different visions and two very different realities emerging. A, a, a digital ecosystem um, that is designed and, and developed and working very effectively in China, and the Western system, which is uh, you know developed primarily from the U.S. but is in much of the rest of the world. And as we look at the Belt and Road Program, what we see is that we, we see these overlaps, where certain projects from China are, are bringing Chinese technology and ecosystems, digital ecosystems, to bear, and the and the U.S. or Western projects are bringing the Western digital ecosystems. And India is a great example of where we see this meshing um, and this competition, if you will, playing out. Um, Underinvestments on the U.S. side in in technologies means that those who are investing um, in these technologies are are going to uh, win the hearts and minds uh, of others, and 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 you know we have to ask ourselves: Are there two really different digital visions for the future, and and what do those digital visions look like, and and um, which will prevail? Steve, you you sent us on a journey on 5G. That we you and um, we, we you gave us a lot of good homework on 5G, and said and and ever, after every meeting, and say we need to. We need to talk to some other people because this is really serious and really important. I didn't fully understand it when we first started. And actually, we started last summer. You and Charlene said, we're interested in, the two of you were interested in doing it as long as we talked about digital. We, I don't think right. we really fully, I, I was like, okay, digital, that sounds, I guess I get that. But uh, after doing the la being involved with this for the last nine months, I, I get it. But. Now I really get it about 5G. What is after, you know we've we've had a series of of side meetings about 5G as a result of sort of getting smart about that. What is right. your reaction to that? So we tried in the report to have there's one of these you know text boxes which is our effort sort of a first draft of a of a U.S. strategy for 5G, right. and I think it's interesting because it's it shows you the elements that we have to work we have to work with more generally. So. The current policy, as I understand it, the dominant policy is we're going around the world saying to companies, countries, do not let your companies buy Huawei products 
and for the and equipment for their 5G networks. And that's great, and we're doing it, and you know, good luck. Uh, Huawei and, thumbs down. And, and, and we're making some progress, <laughs> but, but look, 5G is coming. Mm -hmm. 5G coming. You know, the estimates are what, by 2024, there'll be 1.6 or 2.4 billion folks on 5G. So it's coming, and if people only can get it from Huawei, they'll take it from Huawei. So what's a policy? Well, one thing is, in terms of get in the game, our first thematic, yeah. we need to reconstruct that cooperation between government, academia, and business to invest so that U.S. companies can get in this game. So that's the first thing. So one, let's get our own house. So, so first, let's get in the game. Two, let's get our own house in order. Three, let's work with friends and allies yes. because the potential competitors to Huawei at this point are Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung. Well, they are, you know, companies, you know, resident and good allies of ours. Let's see what we can do to help them become more competitive players in this game through financial incentives, maybe through technology sharing and the like. Um, let's, let's make sure that we can get alternatives out there in the market. Um, Fourth, um, let's use technology. That's our advantage. So one of the places we went to, which we will not identify, yeah. <laughs> talked about the potential of saying, well, look, we think there is a way to develop a 5G architecture that can lay on top of equipment and physical infrastructure that is compromised, but will be resilient to penetration, to data theft, to denial of service. Well, if we can do that, so that if we fail to encourage the world not to do Huawei, we can still deploy and help countries deploy 5G networks that will be secure and that we will be comfortable communicating with them. So use technology. And finally, um, the sixth piece is get China on the right page. China cannot expect to be able to protect its market to the 60 to 70 percent level for Huawei and, uh, and ZTE and then go out in the rest of the world using that protected market and probably government subsidies to underprice all the other companies yeah. in this business in the world and put them out of business. That's not on. So one of the trade agenda items is China's got to open its market because some of these companies we talked to say that if if China has control of the China, if Chinese companies have control of the China market and 50% of the rest of the world, the 50% of the rest of the world left for the rest of the world is not big enough to justify the investments we need to compete with China, Chinese companies. So it's got to be an open market and there's got to be access to the Chinese market. So if you think about those elements, in a way, they echo throughout the report as key elements that are advantages for the United States and suggest a strategy for the United States in meeting the inf infrastructure yeah. challenge and taking advantage of what is not just a challenge but is a huge opportunity for the United States and our countries, companies and our friends and our allies. Yeah, and could I yeah Peter. Just add a thought here. Um, I think one of the challenges that, that we have, and I think Huawei's a great example, is if you look at the history of Huawei, they have spent a lot of time and money investing. For 10 years, they were looking 
into the future and saying, what, does, what is 5G going to look like? And how do we develop the tools, the software, the technology, the hardware that will support 5G? And then how do we you know, get involved in the standard setting organizations around the world so that, so that we understand what, what the standards are going to be and we can help to shape the standards, et cetera? And I think we also have a risk of, of putting everything on 5G. When you, when you step back and say, you know, here's one company that made this kind of investment and now has this kind of market position. What's the next technology? What's the right? 6G? Yeah, well, and, and right, and, and what are all those next technologies? And so I think what we, yeah. we have failed to do in the US, at least to this point, is, is to really step back and say, okay, what, what is the nature and shape of technology development? Where do we need to invest in R&D? And how do we stimulate that academia, government, and, and commercial enterprise interaction so that we stay at the forefront? Uh, because as we know, most of our technologies did start. We're rooted in that cooperation between those three parts of our society. And, and indeed, we're... We're still benefiting from the tail, which is a very long tail, from investments made in the 1950s and 1960s. That's true. And the level of R&D funding in the United States is sort of at a level that has gone down since then, and certainly as a percentage of GDP has yes. gone down. Uh, at a time when our competition is very tough, very smart, exceptionally determined, and backed by a national effort national effort to control as many of the new technologies and or be a key player among two perhaps in new technologies that will determine the next however many years or potentially the next generation. So the United States has done no knitting at home to put back what this sort of golden triangle was, which was academia, business, and government, with respect to fundamental R&D, but then also with respect to potential commercialization opportunities as a national imperative, a national imperative. Uh, and we need to get back to that kind of model. You know, the United States benefited greatly from the Sputnik moment. It was a wake-up call. It, that was the ultimate wake-up call versus the situation the U.S. may be in now where we're the frog in the boiling water. Mm. <laughs> you don't realize the temperature keeps going up because you've been in the water a long time and it just seems to just get a little hotter, a little hotter, but you sort of shrug it off until we know what happened to the frog. So we have to create our own Sputnik moment. If it's not going to be imposed externally. One would think grand initiatives like Belt and Road might catalyze uh, action by the U.S. It has certainly catalyzed Japan uh, and other countries long in the infrastructure game yeah. to up their game, mm. to act faster with greater intention to put forward new mm. initiatives, put forward new partnerships, um, while the U.S. has put forward modest proposals. That's fine, but we're not, we're not catalyzed by some of these issues as some of our closest allies are, and we need to be. Charlene, can I add a Can I just point? say, let me just say, I love that hey, we need a global infrastructure Sputnik moment here, or we need to feel like it's a global infrastructure Sputnik moment. I completely agree with that. Uh -huh. 
just just one data point um, that that I think really emphasizes this point that you're making. Um, between the uh, year 2000 and 2014, I think it is, the, the U.S. added about 56 percent more STEM four-year college graduates um, to something like 750,000 mm -hmm. STEM college graduates, which is very impressive. In that same time period, China added uh, increased STEM graduates 360% to yeah. 1.6 million. And, and so, of course, they have larger population, and, and, this, and we have some of the greatest educational institutions in the U.S., but China's educational institutions are also um, Pretty very good. dynamic and very good. So it, it, it really it, it comes down to kind of a national uh, strategy where education, R&D, and these other elements are very important to a long-term sustainable um, technology-based and um, uh, commercial national security presence. So one of the things, I think one of the responses to this has been the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, for, formerly known as OPIC, the in, in, institution formerly known as OPIC. It seems to me that that's a good thing. What they've done is they've, they've doubled the credit card limit on OPIC, and they've given <laughs> OPIC some additional really important instruments, and we've written about them for a long time here at CSIS. These are very good things. There's a series of important things that have come with it. And they've also given it a longer lease on life. And that we've had a series of 12 years of one-year authorizations, which anyone who knows in government how painful and awful that is, it's gotten a seven-year reauthorization. Good. But I think Charlene's point about that that's, those, are, those are okay, that's a, a step in the right direction, but this is sort of a multi-mile hike we got to go on here. It ain't enough by a, by a, by a long shot. Uh, some of the other things I'm frustrated by are things like we can't get the Exim Bank fully operational. Could I just ask you all a, a softball question? Can we all agree that that's a colossally stupid thing, <laughs> that the Exim Bank is not fully functional? Can I? Yes. That, that all a yes? Yeah. Is that all yes, we agree yes. with that? Yes. Yes. So just for the record, it's a colossally stupid thing that we cannot have the Exim Bank fully functional. <laughs> um, but I think, I think there's a series of things in the report that, that, that are some very specific things that we could be doing. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about allies. I think, Steve, you've talked about allies and others. Could we just, let's just spend a little bit more time on this because I think there have been some additions, some attempts at doing some of this as well. Um, in the Trump administration, which I think have been good, but I think we, we I just think there's we're, we we misunderestimate the the value of allies and or or the multilateral institutions. If you either wanted to talk about that, say the World Bank or the regional mm -hmm. development banks, I'd welcome any comments on allies or the the MDBs. I'd love to hear from any of you. I'm happy to add my own comments about. I, I would that. just say one thing. You know, there's a debate going as you know should bilateral negotiations or more multilateral negotiations for trade priority in terms of trade should be working with multilateral institutions at all or should we work bilaterally the infrastructure challenge and opportunity is so great that we really need the all of the above solution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yes we need to work bilaterally with our allies for example to get agreement on these principles and to to get them to agree to what a set of standards should be. But then we need to work with our bilateral allies in these multilateral institutions to get them to adopt standards that are going to result in the kind of quality infrastructure and the openness that we need in this global economy. Because make no mistake, others, particularly China, are working very actively, more actively than we, in these multilateral institutions because they've got, once you establish the standards, 
uh, on, on terms that favor them, that's, uh, that's a door that in some sense gets closed for us. So I would say, you know, we, our friends and allies are enormous resource in every dimension of this problem. We need to be working with them, and we need to be working with them through all these various institutions. Yeah. And, you know, as Madeleine Albright says, multilateralism is a, is, a company, is a word that Americans don't like. It has too many syllables and it ends <laughs> with an ism. And I get all that. But the truth is these institutions are important players in this space. And we have a privileged position in most That's of these true. institutions. Mm -hmm. And if we combine it with our friends and allies, we can drive outcomes that lead to the kind of infrastructure the world deserves and needs. So just and we as an, should yeah. do it. So just as an editorial on that, um, I'd have my laissez-passe taken away from me at the World Bank from what I'm about to say, but I believe the World Bank and the regional development banks are force multipliers of a Western form of globalization. Mas o menos. I mean, I think they use the American dollar, they use US or British law, most of the technical folks are educated in the United States. The operating language is English. Some of the, it's imbued with some, let's call it Western operating principles. We do also have a privileged position in terms of our votes, in terms of the, the World Bank. We have 15% share. We're the largest shareholder, um, non-African shareholder of the African Development Bank. We're not the largest shareholder, but the largest non-African shareholder. We have the largest share of the Inter-American Development Bank. We have equal shares in the Asian Development Bank with Japan. And the EBRD, I forget what the share is, but it's, it's pretty big. Um, it's, we don't have the ability on our own to do it, but if we work with the, the Aussies, the Japanese, the Brits, the right. Canadians, OECD countries, we can, we can steer these institutions in ways that, that can help us with this. So I, I agree, and it is an ism, and it doesn't come triplingly off and the And again, tongue. it's not because we're going to steer it in such a way that we get an exclusive no. and dominate No, no. That's the whole point about a set of principles that as we talk, make it free, open, and resilient. Yes. It is a set of principles that will actually provide the infrastructure that world actually wants that can lead to a more prosperous and secure yeah. future. That's the goal here. And I think the, the, the other point to make as well is there have to be alternatives available to countries in need of infrastructure development. If the U.S. isn't providing an alternative, if our allies aren't providing an alternative, if the MDBs aren't providing an alternative, then we will, in fact, leave the Eurasian landmass to China. The implications of that are stunning for the United States. And so what you want is to have everybody involved. China as well, obviously. Absolutely. But not to the exclusion of everyone else. Right. So options have to be available to countries trying to develop. If they're not, they'll go with the cheapest, fastest, on the ground source, and that will be China in most cases. So I, so I just, just on that, Charlene, I think if, you know, if it, the, I think that almost every member of Congress probably can't pronounce the, the port in Sri Lanka, but they all, know about the, they all know about the port in Sri Lanka and they don't like it. They, there's this, they know there's this thing called the AIIB Bank in China. They're not sure if it provides car loans or has an ATM, <laughs> but they know that China's got it and they don't really, not sure what they think about it, but they probably don't like it. And they all know what the Belt and Road Initiative is. Uh, and I think if I'm a poor country and I have to choose between no port and a port that maybe includes some bribes, maybe includes some shoddily built stuff, maybe includes some you know, loaded up on debt, 
I'm probably going with door number two. I'm probably going with the, if I have no other alternative, I'm probably gonna go with that. I think that's, I think that's maybe, I, th I think that's true. I think it's true. And Peter. Dan, I just wanna underscore the point that I, I think we, we, we look at the Belt and Road Initiative from a geopolitical standpoint, but what, what China is offering these countries is infrastructure that many of them desperately need. Right. And, and, and China is the one who's calling and saying, right. look it, we can build this port for you. We can, we can help you build this airport. We'll build a rail line for you. We, we, we'll bring the money, we'll bring the construction expertise and, and these sorts of things. And these projects are really important to these countries. And the, you know, we have not yet responded in a way that says, look, there is an alternative to, if, if China wants to do it, let's make it a competition. We'll have a Chinese approach yeah. or, or, or a package, and we'll have a U.S. package, or we'll have a Western package, and let the countries decide based on that. But right now, um, China's really, if you talk to many of the government officials around the world, China's the only one knocking on the door, and they're offering us things that we have wanted for decades. They're speaking to the hopes and aspirations of these countries. My, right. my view is if, if we don't answer the hopes and aspirations of the countries, they will take their business to the Chinese. And, and could I just add to that? Why is it, let's just be completely commercial for a moment. Why should the United States respond to the hopes and aspirations of poorer countries? Because half one half, 50% of all global growth over these past 10 years came from emerging yeah. markets. That's why. And if we look ahead to the next 10 years, it'll be 70% of global growth and half of global GDP. That's why if the US just simply wants to look at this as a numbers issue, that's why the United States has to care about this. We cannot be shut out from or disadvantaged mm -hmm. in, even if not shut out, disadvantaged in half of the world's GDP and 70% of the growth. We simply cannot. I just did two other things I wanted to cover and then I know I need to go to Q&A, but Peter, could I just ask you to talk about the, the phenomenon of urbanization in cities? You touched on it sure. briefly, but I think it, it would re merits a double click, if you would. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I think just about everybody knows that the trend towards urbanization is, is only accelerating. And uh, the, the stats differ whether it's going to be 70% of the world's population or 60% of the world's population. It's going to be a lot. Uh, that live in urban environments. Um, but, but that is absolutely uh, kind of an irreversible trend as far as we can tell. And a, as you look at that urbanization, what you, what you see is a whole host of challenges arising from, um, particularly in the emerging economies where people are settling in areas that are subject to flooding, so you need resilient infrastructure to deal with that or, the, or, or locations for them to, to live in, to issues such as water and sanitation and the like. And the really exciting thing I think that's happening in the world today is how digital technologies are making some of these challenges much less uh, ominous. And uh, for example, you can um, equip water systems now with sensors that show you, you know, where and when water leaks are happening so you can fix them better. You can, I, um, you can uh, deploy smart grid technologies in cities that allow you to you know, power up portions of the city based on solar or renewable energy that you could never get to before. Um, there are just a host of new opportunities through technology to address the challenges and the opportunities of urbanization. Um, but again, you know, it's a, it's a situation where U.S. companies um, uh, are really leaders in many of these technologies today, um, but are not really having the chance to deploy them 
at scale the way they are being deployed mm -hmm. in other parts of the world. And, um, and, and China's very good at that. If, if you've spent any time in China and had the opportunity to operate on their digital ecosystems, you will see you can get pretty much anything you want via your, your smartphone. Um, and, and that is enabling better city management, lower cost of financing, more rapid delivery of projects, and a whole host of other things. So um, urbanization is here, uh, here to stay as far as uh, most of us can tell, and uh, technology will be a great enabler of doing that. And much of the infrastructure conversation is going to be around cities or, or the urbanization phenomenon. Yeah, from mass transit and we talked about autonomous vehicles before, but all of these other aspects yeah. from smart grids and uh, fintech uh, solutions uh, so you don't need a credit card or even to be banked. Um, uh, you, can, you can do it through your mobile phone and, and the like. Um, all of these technologies are are present and accelerated. Can I just ask, so Stephen, Charlene, I, I want to make sure that the audience and that are watching on television don't, it was not our intention that this is, this is not an anti-China report. No, so I'd like, I would like, could you each just, just, just so people walk away from this conversation about what is our message about China in this report that I think, I think we have a, we have a nuanced view about China. I think it's fair to say it's been a wake-up call but they, they're doing a lot of things that we want them to yep. keep doing. But could you just each talk about that? Because I think, yeah. I don't want folks walking out of this room saying this, and I don't think the conversation has gone that way, but I, I think sometimes, sometimes folks can have an, a willful interpretation that, that, that isn't the case, but I want to be doubly right. sure that we're clear about that. So, so we've had a huge, uh, I think, and useful corrective about China over the last three or four years. Um, in some sense, a lot of things were happening in China we weren't paying as much probably attention to as we should. So we now see them as much more of an economic competitor. We see their growing military capability, which our military is now uh, focused on. We see them as a much more formidable geopolitical player. Uh, and we see them as an ideological uh, alternative to us and a competitor for us. And that's what they are. They are a, uh, a great power that is not an emerging great power. They have, an emer they have emerged. Um, and it is, it is therefore going to be a new era of US-China relations. And it's going to be an era where we're going to be more competitive. We are going to be strategic competitors. And the issue is, does that mean that we're going to become adversaries? And does that increase the risk of confrontation and conflict? It could, but my belief is it does not need to. But it will require us to do something that's very difficult and for which there are not a lot of precedents, which is we're going to have to be strategic competitors and strategic cooperators at the same time. Because there are a lot of issues, whether it is terrorism, the global financial system, whether it is uh, 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 climate change, a whole series of issues that confront all of us on this globe that neither China and the United States can solve alone and both of us need solved if we're either going to get the Chinese dream or the American dream. And those are areas where we, we need to be cooperating. So the issue is can we be strategic competitors and strategic cooperators at the same time. And our approach in this report, our three-tiered yeah. framework, what we've talked about in terms of 5G very much is in line that. There are going to be areas where we're going to be strategic competitors and we've got to get in the game and you know, make the investments and work with our friends and allies so we are playing in areas which are of 
economic and national security importance to us. At the same time, there are other areas, particularly infrastructure areas, where China has a competitive advantage, we don't, where the world needs the infrastructure, and if China is willing to put the money to do it, that would be great. Our only request is, do it right. Meet these standards and these principles. Come up with high quality infrastructure. If they're willing to do this, great. We should be supportive. Uh, you mentioned the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. It's, it's early days, but it seems to be a better institution than we thought it was going to be. And if mm -hmm. you talk to the director of it, he's running a pretty good bank. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of, that's where we want China to be rather than where this One Belt, One Road has started out, which has been really a, a geostrategic and economic mm -hmm. uh, instrument of Chinese policy. So I, I think what we tried to capture in this report is we're going to be strategic competitors, but we also can be strategic cooperators. But that requires us to be engaged and to be leading uh, and to be paying attention. And if there's one thing I would put over the front of this report, it is, please, America, Pay attention. Sherilyn, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to add anything to that? Nah, just a ditto. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You all have been a very patient audience. I'd love to get some questions from the audience. I've got a lot of friends in the audience. I'm happy to call on them if I don't get some interesting <laughs> questions. So, okay. So I want to hear from uh, this gentleman back there with the, t the tie, the suit and tie right there. Yep. Um, this woman here with the sunglasses and this gentleman sitting next to, sitting next to her. And, and we'll, do, we'll, we'll bunch them together. Name, rank, serial number. Keep your questions short. Don't grandstand. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Ram Mahidra, IFC, uh, 25 years in infrastructure. Uh, two things that I'm, uh, it's an observation really. I'm worried that I haven't seen a greater sense of worry from all of you. We talk about China doing A, B, and C. And then we talk about the US coming up with a response. And I see two very different systems. China is a single country and a single focus, as you've mentioned, and they've been able to do that incredibly well. And so when I look at infrastructure in China, and I spent a couple of years there, infrastructure in China, what China did was really finish their infrastructure, overbuilt it, and then started looking outside. We haven't done that yet. Mm. And so I think that's an area where it's difficult for us to push hard and, and claim the high ground when we drive down George Washington mm -hmm. Parkway and have to replace our tires, right? Okay. So I think we, we have an issue there, and it's not anybody else, it's us. American Association of Civil Engineers comes and gives us a D. So, so, so that's one area. The second thing I think where we really can make a difference is on uh, this 150 trillion of institutional money. Yeah. It's something we've been working on too, and we really need to focus on how do you get that? Insurance yeah. companies and pension funds have fiduciary responsibilities. Or sovereign wealth company And money. they simply are not willing to do it unless we change the rules of the game. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. we've got to think really closely. So yeah, the, yeah the, just uh, what I would suggest is we bunch these together, but while I have Team IFC, give the gentleman the microphone just for a second. So couldn't we, shouldn't we be using uh, guarantees more? Or should we be using MEGA, which is part of the World Bank Group, or should we be using other instruments? How should we be using... If you were the head of IFC and, and you had a very pliant board, what would you be doing at IFC differently to, to juice up, so use, use the I'm, bank Since group? I'm leaving IFC in two days, I can afford to you go feel, out Speak freely. <laughs> speak freely. Uh, so anything I say is my own views. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, let me, let me Let's suggest talk afterwards, too. Let's Good. talk afterwards, because we are talking still, IFC and all the multilateral banks 
do about 40 billion a year in private sector. Yeah. We are talking trillions, yeah. right? trillions. Yeah. Yeah. And there is money, there is money sitting out there, the Canadian pension funds, the Dutch, the US pension funds. But it's very different, right? They, they, uh, their, their regulators, for example, will slam them if they invest in sub-investment uh, grade. And yet, every one of these projects is typically sub-investment grade. So how do we do it? Do we get a first well, loss, and do we, which yeah. is what we've been doing? Right. But let's talk about it. Okay, I, I would urge you to look at the report. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because one of the seven rec recommendations deals with getting private finance into the game. And they're very concrete, specific recommendations. Yeah. And take a look at those. I mean, it, it, and if you have some others, we'd like to add them, but and, they're and, there. And let me just say, look, the two issues, I think, for the private sector are risk mitigation and return on invested capital. Right? That's what it's all about. You want a return on your investment, and you want that return at the lowest possible risk level. Uh, and so the, so the report talks a little bit about both of those areas, but there's an awful lot of work that needs to yep. be done to get that money off the sidelines, exactly for the reason you said, which is pension funds, for example, have fiduciary responsibilities. Yep. So they're very reluctant, absent a more assured pathway toward return on investment, as well as yeah. reduced yeah. risk. Dan, if I can just jump in on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Since you've only got two more days left of ice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you, you've all put your finger on this, which is uh, you've talked yeah. about yeah. When you talk about the U.S. and the U.S. approach, the U.S. approach is, is really so loosely structured. You know, we're talking about that triangle, which existed, which kind of faded, which we've got to recreate. It's not going to come up in one day. Whereas the Chinese have put forward a very robust structure, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so they're, they're offering the Africas of this world an alternative. And so it's not enough for us to say, uh, here are the set of standards and everybody live by these standards. We've got to provide those alternatives and we've got to provide them quickly yeah. and, 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 and eff effectively. Okay. okay, all right, Let these two folks up here, my, my, friend, my friend with the sunglasses and then the, the gentleman <laughs> ne sitting next to her, please. Thank you, thank you for your remarkable um, presentation. Um, so my name is Anita Parlo and I, uh, um, my question has to do more with the Arctic, if I may. Uh, I was, uh, worked on a project at Harvard MIT and then the Wilson Center Polar Code with Russia, Canada, US, and then recently a Fulbright Fellow two years ago. So um, I appreciate everything you've been saying about 5G and there's no question about it and God is that serious. Uh, so my question is more bricks and mortary. So you got a polar belt and road, you get it up uh, going up the Bering and then across the Northern Sea yeah. Route and who knows the Northwest Passage. And you've got all this development going on, billions, a billion into Sabetta Port, a, a money into oil gas mining LNG. and. Um, and that's going on, and uh, it's needed. It's uh, uh, oil gas mining going in probably back to China, destinational stuff. So um, good point about that we're not looking for enemies, and good point about um, uh, how and whether to engage, monitor, et cetera. So how, is this okay? Um, you know, the, the kind of development that's going on sure is needed, um, and in the end may actually even improve our economy. But uh, geostrategically speaking, does that get in our way? Thank you very okay. much. Let me, let me get a couple more, please, sir. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm currently a Fulbright Scholar. So okay. my name is Dr. Rakhav Malik. I'm at the Elliott School, Seeger Center. Um, 
My question also relates to the previous first question, in fact, uh, but, but in a slight different orientation. More talking about the timelines. Now, how are you going to get uh, US government, allies, all the institutions within different allied countries, uh, private enterprise, private capital, development companies, construction companies on the ground together and make a blueprint uh, that takes advantage of um, the expertise and the advantages that these particular countries have and be able to compete with what China is doing, given that they're going to have a larger share of it uh, and they're far ahead already. And they, they are uh, a single uh, country who's doing this and you're, you'd have a divisive uh, issues, a lot of problems, a lot of litigation, a lot of other issues, uh, division within all this mesh of uh, mm. different organizations, countries and companies. Uh, to do this. So, so when you can get the blueprint ready, how long will it take and how far back will you be? Do you really think, realistically, uh, bricks and mortar on the ground realities? Because I've okay. been around those areas a lot okay. and I know it's not that easy. Okay, let me get one. Let's get another. Okay, uh, my friend Alex here. Thank you very much for a great report. Thank you, Dan. Alexander Kravitz from Insight. I want to pick up on um, uh, one of the themes from the soon-to-be former IFC official that asked the question, <laughs> which, which echoed what Ambassador Barshevsky, Barshevsky was talking about, about knit the, the knitting at home. Yeah. Um, wh what I'm thinking about is, and, and Dan asked about the allies, but I'm thinking about who are the internal allies, if you will, the domestic allies. Who are the policymakers, the government officials currently in government, who get it? Uh, and who are going to make this a reality. Because one could imagine a scenario where for the next two or for the next six years, the US policy, as Steve Hadley described it, continues to be stopping companies from bu buying Huawei equip uh, 5G equipment. So who, who, and if you would mention some names, that would be great, uh, who, who gets it here? And, and who would be you know, the implementers of these okay. recommendations? Thank okay. you. So yeah, let's start. I won't respond to all of this, yeah, but I'll even yeah. try to. But simply make uh, two points. One, on the knitting at home, put aside disagreements among some people, should we try and stop Huawei or not? Whatever we do with Huawei has nothing to do with our ability to deploy 5G in our own country. And it's not going to speed up deployment or slow down deployment in our own country. So you're right, we have to shift our focus uh, put aside Huawei for a moment, make a policy decision there and carry it out, fine. But if our policy is somehow stopping Huawei will help the United States, not if we don't have anything to sell. <coughs> and not if we're not, if we're not 5G compatible at home. So, you know, let's, I think Huawei in that sense is a complete distraction and a, sort of a red herring. And then on the Belt and Road, look, this is, this is such an enormous concept. I said in the beginning, it, this is true grand strategy. Because you have a land belt and road, a maritime belt and road, a cyber belt and road, space, Arctic. These are all in the belt and road, and they are obviously all encompassing. China's rhetoric on the Arctic is the most interesting, they view themselves as a near-Arctic country with the rights of an Arctic country. 
this sounds very familiar, like the South China Sea and the Nine-Dash mm. Line. Mm. So the U.S. has no response on any of this, or very little. We have an Indo-Pacific strategy, the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, which is uh, okay. Um, query, is that going to go anywhere, really? Uh, our, if we're doing it to force people ultimately to choose sides, I would suggest we not. <laughs> we know what happened with the AIIB when we asked countries to choose sides. So I think that we, we, the United States, has to decide what our continuing position in the world should look like. And just we, the United States, leave China aside, leave everyone else aside. We need to say, where do we want to be as a country globally? And we have to say, step one is our economy at home, what we need at home, infrastructure, education, and so on. Because if we're not strong at home, the rest will not happen, period, full stop. Strong at home and more innovative and inventive at home and so on. And what's our conception for the world? We, we used to have these kinds of plans coming out of World War II, certainly, right? What was the Marshall Plan if not that day's Belt and Road? Yeah. Uh, of course, the Marshall Plan in today's dollars was 100 million, it's like chump change. Uh, but it was money well spent at the time, even though controversial at the time. So we need this kind of dispassionate, but clever and strategic thinking. I don't see that going on, uh, certainly not in the economic and commercial sphere. There may be more on the military side that Steve could comment on, but certainly if we look at the commercial sphere, uh, I don't see serious efforts in that regard. Okay, P Peter? Yeah, I, maybe I'll respond to the uh, financial instruments um, uh, questions that have come up. And, and I think actually IFC has pioneered a couple of interesting, uh, I think it's a managed co-lending portfolio program which has brought institutional investors together with the IFC to solve a couple of fundamental problems. And it's small, and, and, but hopefully it could be scaled. One is project packaging. Infrastructure projects are incredibly complex. Right? They involve so many different types of risks. Each project is pretty much bespoke. Um, there are different soil conditions and environmental conditions and NGOs. And, uh, and so there's a lot of work that goes into putting a deal together. And those risks are many, those early development packaging risks are ones that typically institutional investors don't want to take on. And then you get into the financing risks around, um, you know, is it investment grade country? much less an investment-grade project. Um, and then you have political risks, and you have foreign currency risks, and you have breach of contract risks, and all these sorts of things. And what China has been able to do, I think, very nicely is they go in and they say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put all this together in a package, right? We'll look at all of these dimensions of the project, and we will give you, we will give you the financing at this cost, and we will give you the um, construction, and we will give you this kind of warranty period, and, we, and, and you will get a product in, in very quick order. And uh, to the point that was made um, from the soon-to-be former gentleman from the IFC, that it takes a long time to put these things together, it, it does, and we are not well-coordinated to do it. But 
we cannot, I think, as a country, do this ourselves on our own just with public resources. And this is what the report points out. So we need to bring our allies together. We need to bring our partners together. Um, and in some cases, you know, yes, absolutely, the Chinese to, to, to do things together. And that has to start with specific projects. You have to say, okay, we're going to sit down with the Japanese and we're going to pick two or three projects to the point of prioritization. And we are going to figure out, we're going to bring the Japanese companies and the US companies, European companies together, and we're going to come up with a project package, okay? And we're going to bring the finance, we're going to work with DFC, we're going to work with JBEC, and we're going to work with the other resources. And okay, here is, here is a project that we can demonstrate that we do it on. And there are going to be problems, right? Don't think that the Chinese companies, state-owned enterprises and financiers don't have problems with these projects, because they do, but they work them out internally, right? We don't really see those coming to the light of day. And so we need to be much more deliberate about how we put together our teams and how we put together the financing and package this in a way that allows us to move forward even if there are some risks and the government has a role in helping to mitigate those risks or the, or the international uh, multilateral development institutions has, have a role there. Steve? Sort of last quick, quick comments. One, um, you write about we have infrastructure needs here and they need to be addressed. It's one of the things we say in our preface that, that uh, but we've got to do both. We've got to both mm -hmm. do the infrastructure investments we need at home and be a player in the infrastructure abroad. And if those, in some sense, will be competing for resources, but in some respects, they also may be complementary. Second, on the urgency, you know, this is a long-term project. Yes. The, the infrastructure requirements are out to, you know, 2030, 2040, 2050. Um, and it's a huge bill. Remember, you know, the needs in Asia by to 2030 are 26 trillion, and China's only pledged 1.3 trillion. So there's a lot of room for additional <laughs> participation. And the Chinese approach has had real problems. There has been a lot of buyer's remorse that we're all familiar with on these projects. So let's not paint the Chinese effort as 10, foot, 10 feet tall. If we're willing to to get in the game and you know, act to protect our own interests, we can do that. On the Arctic, it's interesting, you know, we're not arguing for an exclusive for anybody, not us, not Chinese. We're basically saying level playing field, set of principles that ensures quality, and then let everybody play. That's, that's, and that's, I think, where we are in the Arctic, because there are a lot of folks who have a lot of interest in the Arctic mm. that can, they can legitimately press. There are internal allies. Uh, you know, the Build Act is very interesting. It finally got done. Executive and legislative cooperation, bipartisan bill. Amazing. Uh, it gives us something to work on. And one of the reasons the report is structured the way it is, and I do hope you go online and look at it, they're very concrete suggestions. Mm -hmm. Things the administration can do, things you could drop into a bill in Congress right now. It's, it, it's a very set of concrete recommendations in the seven key areas that yeah. we think that are the key elements of a strategy. So it's, we think we've mapped it out right there and we would hope and we will be going around both to the Hill and the administration to draw their attention to. We think we've given them a lot to work with and we hope they will.
Look, you've all been a very patient audience. I'd love to get some more questions, but I think we're running out of time. I apologize. I hope my speakers will stick around for a few minutes and just say hello if you want to grab them or grab me afterwards. So please join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you.